This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're listening to us live via your radio or you're listening to the podcast Time Shifted. We appreciate your time. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour now of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? I'm well. How's the uh, climate tracking? Well, uh, no, yeah, don't answer that. No, I'm don't not answer, that. answer that. Dr. Ray's here too. How are you, buddy? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm actually pretty well, I think. Yeah? Just excited to be here. <laughs> we've, got, uh, we've got some guests today out in the green room, which is going to be cool. Uh, but as usual, we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Ailey, you uh, you had something from 2012, but then you realised no, it was I, a well, bit I old. No, well, I realised it was a bit old. It was This <laughs> is me doing things late at night, honestly. Uh-huh. But look, I do have something new, but of course, you know to do with coral reefs and so the news is a little bit depressing but it is interesting okay. and it's it's a new a new perspective of looking at coral reefs um in light of climate change so you know we all know that coral reefs have a lot to deal with at the moment they've got oceans heating up they've mm. got oceans getting more acidic the the poor things are doing it tough oceans yeah, getting we had, deeper we had finding yes, Nemo well, and, and finding now Peru. they're getting sucker punched further Right. With this ocean getting deeper. Thing. Oh, and so that's yeah. The third, okay. So that's the yeah. third mm. third big thing. And this is this is uh, new research that was published on Friday, actually, in mm-hmm. uh, the big scientific journal Nature. Uh, there was a, a huge um, collaboration of a number of institutions led out of the University of Exeter, and basically they looked at two hundred coral reefs mm-hmm. in the Indian and Atlantic oceans, and they thought they would have a look at something called the vertical growth potential. So this is basically how fast. Coral reefs can grow upwards, right? Mm. And because they were concerned with with sea level rise, that, you know, if they couldn't grow upwards fast enough, then things weren't going to be good. And they Mm. found some good news and bad news. And the good news was they found that at the moment with the current rate of sea level rise, things are okay. The coral reefs are all right. They're actually able to accrete, basically build on top of each other um, as fast as the seas are rising. So they're coping. They're, they're keeping their heads above or below water, I should say. So presumably, but, um, I mean, when, when I think of them building on top of each other, it requires the lower ones to be strong. Yeah, as probably. Well, right? Yeah, so I don't know. I don't think they looked at that. Yeah, presumably, that would, that would be part of it as well. But look, what they did next was they looked at the potential changes to sea level rise because sea level rise is not a constant thing, right? Across we have the a globe. trend. Hmm. It is not linear. It doesn't. It's not going to happen at the same rate. And so as we go forward, particularly if we're thinking about um, a a future climate where we've got really, really strong emissions and kind of the the earth goes on as is, um, even if we abate emissions a little bit and kind Mm. of say, well, you know, the scenario in the future is not too bad, unfortunately, what they found for these 200 coral reefs was that pretty much for all of them, the rate of sea level rise is going to increase to a point where it outpaces the uh, ability of the coral reefs to grow upward. So, so can, can we just unpack that for a second? Because yeah. there's two things there, isn't there? there? There's the, the, the way in which sea level rise changes. So yes. it's not a nice linear exactly. centimetre per yep, year. That's right. So it but could all, be like one centimetre per year at the moment, and then but five, then five. And then, and then, then back then to three. Exactly. And, you know, and so, around. Yeah. so there's that. But there's also the element of it being different in different locations that's in the right. world. That's right. So there's, exactly. two, there's two pieces there. There's two pieces yeah. of that puzzle because, yeah, sea level rise is not the same everywhere in hmm. the world. In some places it's, it's 
not really changing all that much and in others it's changing a lot, right? Um, But what they found, at least in the Indian and Atlantic Oceans, was that by kind of the middle of the century and with these, even with these moderate changes into the future, that um, unfortunately the sea level rise is going to start to outpace the rate of, of coral coral reef growth in the vertical and you know coral reefs are quite sensitive ecosystems and so they have this kind of habitable zone you know fairly close to the surface really when you think about the depth of the ocean and everything um and so they'll yeah there's this thing that that the Mm. ecologists call submergence and um that gets to the point where the coral reefs just just yeah, can't keep their heads above water, so really. This does tails into the story from last week where there was a study on an economic analysis of how coral reefs drive flood mitigation. Yeah. And that the, the estimated savings by having coral reefs across mm. pretty much every low-lying area has mm. this huge impact on flood mitigation. Mm. And, yes. and so that, yeah. that there's – but, I mean, we're talking billions of dollars. There's a huge yeah. money tag, yeah. price tag associated with – having the coral reefs saving money from floods. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, and floods associated with, you know, both river flooding and storm yeah. surge and, and things like that from, yeah. from cyclones and stuff. And, and, so and, I, and I was just thinking, like, the, the third piece of that puzzle as well is not just, you know, different rates of sea level rise yeah. and different locations having different sea level rise, yeah. but different susceptibility in different locations, right. susceptibility that's uh, right. from the that's reefs right. and other things that's as well. That's right, that's right, because, you know, now you've got this this compounding mm stuff you've got you've got the submergence you've got the the heating as well you've got the acidification um you've probably also got things like you know reefs get hammered during storms and Mm. and tropical cyclones Mm. those you know future changes are really uncertain but it's it's all another piece of the puzzle so our poor coral reefs feel really bad they're they're they're, yeah really copping it good morning people and welcome to sunday I know. <laughs> Thanks, it's my, my depressing news for the morning. Yeah. Have a great Sunday, well, everyone. Well, <laughs> you know, um, information is never depressing. No, if that's you use right. It that's well, right. And know, I mean, it's 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 yeah. it's just one other thing that we have to think about. You know, when yeah. we're when we're considering, <clears throat> you know, how to protect these really fragile ecosystems and really important ecosystems. I mean, even if you think at it about it from a really bland economic yeah. perspective, you know, how it's another thing. It's it's good to know. So that yeah. we can. Um, well, well, I was just about to say that the part of this that amazes me is that we. So this was just published this week, yeah. right? Yeah. We're just working out now yeah. the vertical, you know, growth rates, growth rates, yeah. and how they can handle this. I mean, yeah. we don't have a lot of information no. on this and really important right. space. Yeah, and one of the things we also don't know is how that might change. I mean, we don't know if the coral reefs will adapt, and if yeah. they can well, start growing faster, we just don't I mean, know. The same coral species, as it gets close to the surface of the water compared to when it's say half a meter away actually can differentiate the type of coral they grow mm. whether or not they're plate like or spires mm. yep. and, and so the yep. the morphology and shapes of the coral yep. that are then growing which define the foundation as it grows up yep. could completely change yep. it'll select for different types of corals as the mm. if the light starts to get less because the water's higher like that the differentiation of what will happen to the corals is rather a complex question on its yeah. own. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like we're going to have to have a major input in the relocation of some of these reefs. Yep. You know, like so, building up artificial yes, substrates yes, and so forth in yep. locations where we think... We, anyway, yep. there's, there's a lot there. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Ailey. I'm feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ailey, what do you got? Uh, Dr. Shane, I have a, a story about rabbits in Montana. <laughs> that sounds More better. More cheery, yeah. Uh, so everybody think bunnies. Bunnies. Um, so it's actually about snowshoe hares. Okay. Which um, in the why is they're uh, they're one of the twenty one twenty one bird or mammal species that have polymorphism. So basically, when they molt for winter, they change color. 
So they're brown, they molt, and then they uh, regrow a coat that's white to blend in with the mm-hmm. snow. Cool. Yeah. They also have a, a version, the, the same hair will actually molt brown, molt and brown and regrow brown as well. So, it, And that really what they found is polymorphism like that, which color it, it molts to depends on where it lives. Higher altitudes where there's more snow, they tend to do better about not getting picked up by predators if they're white-coated hares and brown-coated hares if, if it's less snow. And so that, that aspect of polymorphism has been known for a while, and there have already been studies showing that as snow lines move, the uh, which animal survives depends on its background. So if the snow line starts to move up, you see the brown-coated rabbits doing better at higher altitudes mm. than they used to and things like that. But this is actually trying to understand something about where this gene came from. And so it's researchers at Montana and literally around the world from Switzerland to Portugal um, have looked and they identified the gene that really switches this molting behavior. It's called the agouti gene. Uh, and, And they actually looked at where it came from. So this is the gene or the regulation pathway that says, hey, you've molted your coat. Now, when you regrow, you should switch to white. And so they've actually figured out where that gene is. And what was interesting is they figured out where did it come from. So this is clearly sounds like an adaptation, right? It, we're, we're selecting for animals will live better in one environment, not get eaten, have a chance to procreate. And so we can think of this as, as natural selection. And, and that's probably the pathway we generally think about polymorphism as, as evolving. But what they found was they actually looked at the genomes of quite a few different hares, as well as snow hares, as well as jackrabbits. And, and, if they predicted, oh, how should this gene evolve and from natural selection and the time frame over which the rabbit actually evolved this, this, this capacity, mutation within the species alone wasn't sufficient, just the one snow hare species. But what they did find was this gene is also in a number of jackrabbits. Yeah. And they figured out that after actually doing genome sequencing on the jackrabbits, whole genome sequencing, looking at mitochondrial DNA, a lot of genetics I don't understand. Um, <laughs> they uh, they actually realized that they actually think the ability to switch colors actually came across from one rabbit species to another, and so they think it was actually a black-tailed jackrabbit crossbreeding with the hares sometimes because it was also in mountainous regions and on weaker winters it would go up. Um, that they actually think it was they called it. Uh, hybridization through, it was an odd term because I went, okay, that has a weird meaning to me. Mm-hmm. Um, introgression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually think that that's actually the pathway for this adaptation was not, it was, it was basically that sped it up. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a way to adapt to ecology through crossbreeding or hybridization is what they refer to it as. So that's actually one pathway that they really hadn't considered for polymorphism. And it suggests that that type of hybridization or introgression between species might actually help species respond faster to ecological change than slow-scale mutation and, and, and natural selection on other pathways. So does that mean that perhaps a lot more of these, I mean, in this case you're talking about hairs, but a, a lot of these species of hares might have this and so would be able to adapt quicker than we might have expected to Possibly. changes I mean, in their environment? That, that's what they're hinting at, is mm. they think this is actually... A, a more important pathway to look at than what was previously thought about how species adapt and evolve because hmm. the timescales can be faster yeah, than just right. mutation. Pretty and, cool. And it was really weird. They're like, yeah, they basically modeled how what the rate should have been from mutation alone, and they're like, oh, it doesn't fit the modeling. And I was sitting there going, gosh, how did they, how did they could model that in the first place? But um, that it was like the timescales actually from species, different species of hair interbreeding actually hmm. yeah. led to it. So... 
So that's that's a plus, particularly because they've they've already looked at how polymorphism is is, is changing the distribution yeah. of those genes as as snow lines move up. But this suggests that there's mm. a capacity there. Yeah, that's to, interesting. Yeah, cool. yeah. All right, let me uh, tell you about something I found this fascinating because you need to put a few things together here. Mm-hmm. First of all, you need to put researchers from the UK, Italy, and Malta together. Um, yeah, Malta cool. specifically. Uh, you, Anybody yeah. from Austria, no. No, um, no, Germany, no, um, was these three. Um, second, you need to put a couple of interesting facts together. Um, one is that uh, we're really interested in earthquakes across mm-hmm. our planet, and it's really important that we detect them and we measure them and we're able to, you know, look at look at all the structures that, cause them but one of the problems with that is actually putting um, seismic detectors uh, across the globe because 70 percent of the globe is water and these things don't do well in water so you really you know you want them on land you know most of them are on land so we have a great network of seismic detectors across the world and there's actually an app you can get on your phone that lists at any given time where all the earthquakes are i'm, I'm obsessed with it yeah, anyway, it's, it's awesome, it's, it's awesome. You know, i'm like oh there's a 2.1 in italy cool um, so not, not so cool for up. the people in Italy, but so, cool, you know. So. so finding that after the show now. Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, I'll, I'll show you. It's, it's really cool. Um, anyway, and, and it's amazing just how many earthquakes are going on around the world at any given time and how many we're detecting. But the ones in the ocean are harder to detect unless they're really big because we tend not to have detectors on 70% of the globe. Okay, so park that for a second. Our telecommunications network is made up of massive amounts of optical fibres that are strewn across the earth, mm-hmm. right? and across the ocean floor. Undersea cables. Undersea cables. In fact, there's something like a million kilometres of optical cables um, around the world and the ocean floors. Wow. So we can lay them in the ocean, but NBN can't get them to your door. (laughs) Sorry. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Um, (laughs) We can laugh for a moment later. So these things things go across the Atlantic, the Pacific, they're everywhere. In fact, there's more than we need at the moment. A lot of optical fibres actually aren't used. Um, There's actually more capacity than we need at the moment. But even the ones that are used have this amazing feature where, and and this has been discovered recently by a guy named Giuseppe Meruere, and he was looking at some, just some transition points between two locations, and he found some disturbances that he couldn't quite work out. And what he later realised was that these disturbances in the signal or there's sort of some complications in the way the signal was being received were due to an earthquake that occurred on the bottom of the ocean at that particular time. And so what this, this group of researchers from the UK and Italy and Malta have started to realise is that there's potential for these cables to be used as seismic detectors. And given that they're all over the ocean already and using them doesn't affect their existing use. So if you tag this on to their existing use, it doesn't cause any problems with telecommunications you might actually be able to set up a more more substantial network of earthquake detectors um, across the planet which we don't currently have well see that's fascinating because there there are these seismographs that you can put under the ocean but they cost about three yeah. million bucks a pop yeah well this and i know that there. and i know that uh, fishermen also like to attach their boats and they get broken all the time and then it costs a whole bunch more money yeah. so this is i mean this has got huge implications for things like yeah. tsunami forecasting and, right. and all sorts of like stuff that. that's fantastic so now, now to be fair i mean this is very preliminary work but they've shown that they can see the effect of so so this is not you know hey good idea maybe mm. we should try it they've already it sort of went the reverse they saw an effect yeah. and then they backtracked it and realized it was due to a, a you know subsurface earthquake and so they can do it it's a matter of how what sort of level of precision and yeah. so forth 
forth they can get out of it. So there's some work to be done, but it's interesting. We have this structure of optical fibre cable networks there. So that would be the next question. Can they pinpoint the location or does it have to be right under the cable or... Well, I actually think you find um, from, you know, my my background's in fibre optics is why Mm. I was excited about Mm. this. Um, So I think you'd be able to pinpoint the location, no problem whatsoever, because Mm. you you know signal transmission times, Mm. you know, for for a signal through fibre one to get in front of the signal from fibre two due to an earthquake, Um, you know how far in front it would have gotten. You, you can work this stuff out. Yeah. It's but not, you'd have to have a cable there, right? You yeah, you'd have to have triangulate one. Triangulate between them or but something. Even, but even good. current size, seismometers are never necessarily right where that the earthquake size, occurs. Yeah. They, they're actually, they yeah. triangulate the earth yeah, where it is. Just right. in the same way your phone triangulates your location using GPS satellites. Mm. Like it, it, you, you have to work out where you are. So there's some interesting potential here. And I also wanted to quickly mention, because there's another article I read, and I, I learned a new term. I always get, I, I get very excited. Is it when, a fancy term? It's a bloody fancy term. So this is the term for um, when, it's the scientific term for when ice starts to melt and the the earth structure lifts up as a result of the reducing weight, mm-hmm. which we often call uplift. That's yep. the sort of common term. Yep. But apparently... Um, not the, fancy enough. Not fancy enough. Glacial isostatic adjustment. Yes. Nice. Oh, wow. I was like, I read nice. that and thought, what the... And yeah. then there was an, yeah. then, then they said yeah. it's uplift. Yeah. I was like, well, you wouldn't want to call it that. People yeah. would remember it. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to try and use that term at least once today. Today, after the, wow. after the show, oh. uh, just in general. When you're ordering coffee, right? Yeah, you yeah. know. Did you realise the GAA is yeah. really uh, yeah. it's yeah. it's cracking up a high rate in Antarctica at the moment? And people yeah. go, what? The? Oh, uplift. Yeah, you, you could try ordering an iced coffee, but it's the wrong time of year. <laughs> yeah. Then you'd have a better shot at using it. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and when we're back in the moment with our first guest for today, you're listening to Einstein the Go Go on Three Triple R. Three Triple R. Now, you are listening to 3 R. you're listening to Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with us now is Associate Professor Penelope Bryant. She's a consultant in paediatric infectious diseases and the medical lead in the hospital, the home program at the Children's Hospital, also a group leader and clinical scientist fellow in clinical paediatrics at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. And if that's not enough, she's also an Associate <laughs> Professor in the Department of Paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Penelope, did I miss anything? No, that's fine. How do you have time to eat? I don't. <laughs> It's an amazing uh, list of things. I get, well, at least they're all in the same building, aren't they, down at the, the Royal Children's Hospital campus? They are, so we're lucky. It's a single campus and I can do all my jobs on one campus yeah, and uh, get, go to the coffee shop in the meantime. Yeah, that's nice. Now, you work in particular in, in sort of infectious diseases and antibiotics and so forth, and we, we hear a lot about this issue of antibiotic resistance. So one of the things I think is interesting is we, we don't, you know, the general public don't see this very often. So can you describe what you see in terms of antibiotic resistance? Because we, most of us, when we go to our GP and so forth, we get antibiotics, they work and we don't see a problem. So what are you seeing? So I think that's absolutely right. There is antibiotic resistance uh, in the community, but you're not really seeing it until you're getting uh, children in hospital Mm -hmm. with antibiotic resistant infections. And what we've really been seeing over the last few years is an increase in the number of resistant infections. Now, often they present the same as normal infections, uh, infections which we do have antibiotics to treat. Um, But when you start treating, children just get worse and 
they don't respond as you'd expect them to, as you'd hope them to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when you finally grow the bug in the lab and you test it against the, the antibiotics that we usually treat against and it's resistant, then we realise what the problem is. And sometimes by the time you've got to that stage, and it's often 48 hours after you've been using antibiotics, which are frankly useless against that yep. infection, the child's got quite a lot worse, sometimes ends up in, uh, in the intensive care unit. And so that's really the problem that, the, that we're seeing. Mm. Now, I want to talk about the, the resistance element because I think this is something that we don't really unpack very often. So what does that mean in terms of, as you say, you grow it up in the dish. What do you see? Is, is it partially working but the particular bacteria or, uh, is, is adapting too quick? Is that bacteria like just unaffected completely from you know, day dot? Uh, what exactly is happening? Because resistance is a word that sort of implies to me it's trying, you know, but it's not quite getting there. So maybe yeah. if you just thumped it harder, quicker, it would work. But that, that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, so that, that's rarely the case. You're, you are right. There are situations where uh, an antibiotic, uh, can, a bug can become resistant during treatment, mm-hmm. but that's almost never the case. The case is usually that because of problems of overuse of antibiotics in the community and in hospitals, which we can talk about in a minute, that from the moment that the child has the infection, the, anti- the uh, bacteria is already resistant. So it's already, you, you look on the dish and the, the bug is growing throughout all the antibiotics that you can use. Um, and so the uh, opportunity to try giving a higher dose of the antibiotics, sometimes there is an opportunity for that, but rarely that's the situation now. Mm. And particularly with some of the uh, organisms uh, which we find caused by gut, uh, sorry, infections caused by gut bacteria, they're particularly ones that we just don't have the opportunity to use antibiotics mm. with. Now, what I'd like to also explore is how this resistance initiates. So, I, I go to the doctor and I get antibiotics for a certain particular, you know, lung infection I might have, you know, bronchial infection or whatever, uh, which is bacterial, and I take my medication, I stay home for a few days and, and it clears up. How does that lead to resistance? How, I mean, how does the I suppose the toughest version of the bacteria that's in me that lasted longest then get to someone else and propagate? Like, how does that work? So the antibiotics that you're taking will likely get the infection that you're actually, you've got at the time, that Mm -hmm. will make it better. It'll kill those bacteria. But the trouble is what happens is that as you're ingesting the antibiotic, it's affecting all of the other bacteria that live in your gut. And we know that about 90% of the dry weight of your stool is bacteria. So there's a huge amount of bacteria in the stool. uh, And it's commonly known as the microbiome, which is Mm -hmm. It's increasing interest uh, in science over the last decade. But what happens is that the uh, the um, uh, organisms which are able to resist that bacteria, and there may only be very, very few of them, um, are then able to propagate because the antibiotics have killed all of the other bacteria that suppress that bacteria. Um, and then because of a number of things, including poor hand washing uh, uh, after, you've, uh, after you've been to the loo, um, uh, but also other things like um, skin uh, contamination, people touching each other. It's very easy to spread bacteria between people. Often happens within families mm. first, but then gets into the wider community. Um, and so that's how, really how antibiotic resistance happens within people. But um, unfortunately, antibiotic resistance happens well prior to getting to people. So it happens because of overuse in farms yeah. um, and uh, in veterinary care. And so it's a much, much bigger problem than just in humans. That was actually my question. Was I was trying to understand the like the, the U.S. FDA. I think last year finally said maybe we should stop getting antibiotics to every chicken because it makes it a little easier to grow them. So. How, what is the scale? Uh, do we have a feel for overuse in people versus overuse in farming and community? What's What's been the lion's share or is there a lion's share pathway that's led to a lot of the antibiotic resistance or is it 
really a combination of people and animals. So it's a combination of people and animals and, and, and honestly everybody likes to blame everybody else um, but everyone needs to take, we all need to take our own responsibility for our antibiotic use. I think the difference between human and animals is that with humans antibiotics are something that we give because they're life-saving um, but increasingly we've given things, uh, antibiotics for things that's not life-saving, it's just work day saving or mm. school day off saving um, uh, for things like tonsillitis and ear infections and things that we actually know will get better mostly uh, if you don't give antibiotics and there's been a big drive to delay giving antibiotics for those kinds of infections um, but the trouble is is uh, in uh, in animals is that it's important to give antibiotics to an animal that's sick but what's mm -hmm. been happening is antibiotics have been given exactly as you said to, an to animals just so that they grow better having said that <clears throat> you know that you have to sort of understand that um, financial ramifications for farmers uh, by if they don't give antibiotics to animals to grow better then they're not competitive against um, other farmers and so there, it's much bigger than just a health issue. It's a whole economic issue. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, our society is almost sort of structured in a way at the moment to cause this problem, yep. whether it's get back to work quick or get back to school quick or, or I have an expectation when I see my GP that I get these things, otherwise my GP's incompetent. I mean, there's all of these elements. I mean, w when people come into the hospital, I mean, that's part of what you're working mm. on, giving good, you know, working out how to provide good advice to parents with regards to antibiotic use. I mean, how do you approach that? So, so actually, it's, uh, it's although I think a lot of people think um, parents come with an expectation to receive antibiotics, um, there's some uh, work coming out that actually shows that parents aren't always going uh, expecting antibiotics. And um, a study done by one of my uh, colleagues, David Bergner, and his team looked at uh, antibiotic use uh, in, a, in a bigger study in under one-year-olds and showed that uh, by the time children are one-year-old, that 50% of them had already had, uh, had antibiotics, mm. which is a huge number. Mm. But when they dug down a little bit into it, they found that not only were a lot of those antibiotics prescribed for viral symptoms, but when you spoke to the parents, a lot of them said, actually, we went and didn't expect antibiotics and then were given antibiotics. But if you speak to GPs, they say a lot of parents come expecting antibiotics. So there seems to be a mismatch of expectations mm -hmm. between um, parents and, uh, and doctors. Certainly when families come uh, into the emergency department, it's often a sort of quick uh, environment and you're trying to get things very, very like general practice. You're trying to get things happening quickly. You're trying to get lots, lots of children seen very quickly. The temptation, of course, is to write a prescription and, and yeah. go out quickly. But actually, I think we are getting better in hospitals and in general practice at saying, actually, it's worth spending that extra couple of minutes. And most parents appreciate the education and appreciate the yeah. two-way conversation. But presumably getting some of the information out on the negative elements to the individual of the use of antibiotics is a big part of that too, because they're not all positive. Yeah. Like they, I mean, they, they wreck your microbiome, right? Yeah, that's degree. right. So there's, there's two aspects. One is get the information and one is what are the problems uh, causing course through the microbiome so getting the information out uh, i think the trouble is that it's been um uh, there's a lot of information about everybody's going to die and uh, untreatable infections and people have become a bit numb to that mm. um, because that will happen but because it isn't happening today people aren't yep. really believing it and it has happened in a couple of cases people have died of completely untreatable infections but people haven't seen it in their own backyard yet um, so I think al although that will come and has been projected to uh, be 10 million deaths if we don't uh, through antibiotic resistance by mm. 2050 if we don't start managing this problem uh, I think the story really is that the, the bigger harms caused by antibiotics in addition to antibiotic resistance so 
particularly talking about the microbiome. We know that if you take antibiotics, it disrupts the bacteria in your gut quite substantially. And what we're seeing is that children who at the age of, you know, really preschool, sort of four or five who are obese, have substantially disrupted microbiomes. Now, what's the relationship between antibiotics and that disruption? We think it's quite strong, but at the moment, we're, that's what we're re- researching. Mm. Look, it's a super interesting area. I could talk to you about this all day, I think, now we are out of time, but um, it's... It, yeah, no, I told you to go quick. <laughs> Uh, we, we have, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's great that we have you down there at the, the RCH looking at some of this, especially with kids, because this is something that affects their whole lives. If you do this, you give them too much of this too early on, we're starting to see, you know, research is starting to show the effects of this over the longer term. So good luck with the ongoing work. And it'd be great to get you back at some stage and talk about this more, because you had to give us a bit of a lesson on antibiotic resistance, which yeah, took up the, a bit the time. Next time I come, I'm going to talk about my passion for getting children home so they never even get to hospital. Oh, look, so I, I'm, we'll I'm all about. for it. I'm all for it. I understand, you know, it'd be great put a big GP clinic right on the grass out the front of the RCH so they don't even get in there, you know, they just, yeah, just stop them before they get, well, because a lot of people don't need to go through the emergency room, actually. It's, you go there Saturday night and you see all the ailments and there's some, that, there's some that are required, but there's a lot that aren't. And if they do come to the emergency room, we can get them out to hospital in the home rather than getting to a hospital bed. So Absolutely. It sounds like a good thing to me. Penelope Bryant, thanks so much for coming in and good luck with the ongoing work. Thanks, Jane. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Three, triple, ah. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is David Balding. He's from Melbourne Integrative Genomics at the University of Melbourne. David, welcome to the studio of RRR. Thanks, Shane. Now, look, it's great to have you in. I, I think we need about an hour and a half for you, but we've got about 10 minutes, so we're going to have to rip through it and see what we can get to. Uh, you're... you're you're a mathematician, statistician, basically, by training, yes? That's right, yeah, all my training's in maths, yep. Yeah, now, can we start with your some of your forensic DNA sort of work? Because I think this is really cool, because anything that brings in ancient kings to me is kind of <laughs> interesting. Give, give us a little bit about um, the forensic work you did with um, with the King Richard III stuff, because people would be stunned by this, I think. Yes, yeah, so, well, I have a long history of working on DNA evidence in real crime cases, and mm. uh, I started out with a seminar from the London police. They came and gave a seminar and talked about this newfangled DNA evidence quite a few years ago, ended up working on that, had a lot of involvement in crime, and then started to think more generally about how you put evidence together, how do you weigh evidence, you know, because people often don't really have an idea how strong the evidence is, and, and mathematics doesn't have all the answers, but it can help you think through mm. in a rational framework. And so when the team at Leicester were putting together the evidence for the bones being those of King Richard III, these famous bones under mm. the car park that everyone heard about. Well, they, you know, they were kind of scratching their heads around. We had a whole ton of evidence from isotopes and uh, from the DNA and from uh, fractures in the skull and all of that. And how do we put this evidence again? Uh, people thought it was an open and shut case, but it wasn't actually. There was no one item of evidence. A lot of the journalists said genetic tests proved, but the genetic tests didn't prove it. Okay. It was really a combination of all the evidence. And I worked on a kind of, you know, mathematical formalism to put all that together. And we came up with a number. Uh, and, of course, like every number, there's a lot of assumptions underlying it. It's not completely hard, but it did, you know, you, you could criticise the steps. And um, it seemed to have convinced people, I think. So no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there were a few naysayers at the time, yeah. you know, particularly trying to get a bit of publicity and saying, oh, the case hasn't been proved. And... and uh, uh, 
Well, you know, of course, uh, as a scientist, we say, no, there's no such thing as an ultimate proof in these right. kinds of things. Yep. You can just weigh the evidence, and the evidence is overwhelmingly strong. And presumably when you did that, you would have had to take um, data and material from a variety of different types of experiments yeah, exactly. with, with a variety of different sort of specificity around their errors and so exactly. forth. Exactly. I mean, so we had to think about the error models for carbon dating, for yep. the isotope analysis, for the hair and eye colour analysis, and, and also... The DNA, and of course, famously in the DNA, why it wasn't overwhelming is because the mitochondrial DNA that follows the maternal line did fit the story, but the Y chromosome following the paternal line didn't fit the story mm. that um, there were three men who claimed to be descendants of Richard III's great grandfather or something like that, and if and they didn't have the same Y chromosome as the skeleton, so mm. if their claims were right, the skeleton was not that of the king. But anyway, there are alternative explanations for how this could occur, and we had to start working out, you know, we had to sign probabilities for f false paternity or, you know, misattributed paternity. Of course, that's a delicate question. And yeah. of course, there's no hard answer to that, but there's a fair bit of data. And so we had put in conservative assumptions and, and we reckoned about a 1% probability in any generation. Of course, you know, again, you can challenge this because the probabilities are probably different in for royalty either than the for commoners and all of those kinds mm. of things. But 1%, you know, there's a lot of spectacularly high estimates that, you know, 10 or 20% of people have the wrong, you know, the, 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 their natural father is not the one they think it is. But actually, the, the careful studies show it's much less than that. And yeah. something 1% is probably a bit on the low side, but it's something like that. It, and the use of uh, genomics and so forth these days in, in criminal cases is becoming very widespread and you know, more accepted. I mean, I mean, you would have seen that transition from something that I suppose the court systems and so forth were, were loosely interested in to something that's now being used to exonerate people in some cases after decades of imprisonment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is, DNA evidence is huge and it is in general very good uh, and really was pretty good right from the start, mm. but there were a lot of uh, ways it could go wrong in special cases and it's to some extent um, it's it created new challenges because we've got down to these really really tiny amounts of DNA almost down to kind of single cell level so that means there's you know your and my DNA everywhere we go and the, and and then there's degradation and contamination because there's people's you know all our environments covered with DNA from many yeah. people so that you know so the complexities have increased with the success of the early uh, early methods but yeah it's very it's very widely accepted i think it is very powerful it is used to um exonerate people and of course to convict people decades after the um, mm. after the offence. Uh, so that uh, there was a famous case in Scotland I worked on called the World's End case, very dramatic. It's uh, named after the World's End pub in Edinburgh where the victims were last seen. And uh, uh, that, that crime was in the 1970s and then uh, somebody was successfully convicted just a couple of years ago yeah. uh, from DNA evidence, highly degraded. But uh, And that's why the, the methods weren't there to deal with such degraded samples uh, until fairly recently but we finally you know were able to do it and even and fortunately the samples were kept well enough that yep. the dna although highly degraded there was still enough uh, evidence there from so many samples i think there were 12 different uh, crime stains that i worked on and they all had some evidence in favor of uh, of this accusation of the crime. I'm going to be cleaning up my DNA wherever I go. It worries me. Um, now, let's, let's talk a bit about uh, this new unit you're um, leading there called Melbourne Integrative Genomics. I mean, yes. this integrative... Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Okay, what are we, doing? we can, we can, uh, <laughs> yes, it's a sort of made up word in a sense, oh, yeah, you know. It's a good word. It's a good, it's a good it's word. A good but it, but it's that idea of uh, genomics underpins so much nowadays in, mm. you know, a huge amount of medical research, but also biological mechanisms, this whole thing of, you know, how do 
the how does everything work in the cell and you can sort of think about that as starting with the DNA but uh, you know there's a huge amount of uh, genomics in in agriculture and also environmental studies and so on so the university like you know universities all around the world are grappling with this idea that we have this genomic spread across all the different departments and faculties uh, and and uh, many of them are grappling with similar kinds of problems and around big data and, 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 and statistical analysis and those kinds of things. So Melbourne Integrative Genomics was set up to, uh, to try and bring together some expertise where within the Faculty of Science, joint between maths and biosciences, and we focus on those kind of mathematical, computational data analysis kinds of things, and we try to collaborate with people in all kinds of areas, forensics, medical research, mm. uh, and uh, basic biology, uh, everything. That, uh, mm. um, this would strike me as an area with a, with a huge opportunity, and, but it would almost be disruptive because when you start to strain of biological sciences, you're working in biosciences, it, you, a large fraction of the people you would interact with don't have much maths background and even possibly less stats. I mean, I, a lot of my biological colleagues, um, as trained as an engineer, they don't know what I'm talking about when I say calculus. Hmm. So uh, this must be an amazing opportunity, but what are the types of challenges that that, yeah. that come with that? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. There are challenges. I mean, it's good that many people are ignorant of these things. It keeps me in a job. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, and of course, you know, we have to have the... But that's partly what we're there for, you know, that we've got a lot of these kind of expertise in the computational and and a whole range of mathematical and statistical models. And, but we have to be able to talk to people working in different areas, which, you know, which we can try and do and succeed in in some ways, yes. Are you starting to see a, a transition in the training for what it would be to be a biologist or a, or a geneticist? I mean, the biologists I interact with, they may not know everything about calculus, but they're really smart. Yes. And, and they're always interested in learning skills to solve their problems. So it, Absolutely. So there is uh, increasing interest, I think, among the researchers. Um, unfortunately, the level of training is probably better than it was. It's still not great. Universities are are very much focused on this sort of customer view of students and what the students want and the message hasn't really got through to the students that this is that mm. the sort of mathematics uh, even if you want to study biology that, that the mathematical skills can still be useful i mean i, I think there's some progress uh, has been uh, has been made but uh, but not i mean it's nowhere near commensurate with the demand i mean people like us who can talk about biology and genetics but have that kind of mathematical and computational expertise we are in demand as i said it keeps me in a job which is great that, uh, yeah i was, I was going to say i mean the, the 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 other side of that coin is the number of people like yourself with maths and the stats of the backgrounds that understand biology um from my experience is a pretty small number i mean that that's that's something that presumably where you got well yourself um david is uh, fairly unique yes it's grown it's not nowhere near unique anymore it has definitely grown in the years mm. i was very lucky to kind of fall into it by chance mm, yeah. uh, at the beginning of my career and I've done really really well because of the demand and got involved in all these interesting problems uh, there's, there's still nowhere near the supply to meet the demand but it definitely uh, it definitely has grown so there are you know pe people uh, you know at least hundreds of people around the world in our mm. community and uh, and and more that mm. Mm. Are, you, are you I mean sort of last question for you but are you seeing a transformation in the way that we're going about medicine healthcare biomedicine, the whole thing, as a result of that? Or has that not started yet? I mean, we hear big data, we hear it all the time, but 
are you seeing the transformation starting to occur? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, ge- uh, genomics is getting into routine medical mm. uh, practice. That's definitely happening. And this idea of that you can actually look at the DNA and those processes near the DNA and put together that kind of sequence of events that leads to outcomes. I didn't even tell you at all about my my work on the uh, the physical phenotypes in people, all, you know, mm. hair and yeah, eye yeah. and ears and that kind of stuff. Putting together the sort of nitty-gritty of how that all works is really beginning to happen in a in a very detailed way and so definitely um progress you know there's a lot of progress on that front now and there's of course a huge amount to come in the in the coming years mm. look it's it's fascinating i love i love this big data stuff me i started off in astrophysics so big data is like you know love it yes. um but the ability to take a person's whole whole information you know they're, they're in everything about them and put that into the way we interact with them in the medical sense and health sense and so forth and everything else is something that will be very exciting when it when we get there so um yes. thanks so much for coming in and talking to us and uh, great to hear that we had so much involved in that some old king from the uk <laughs> <laughs> i'm amazed that wasn't all over the news that you know, your face should be a household uh, recognition at this point as a result of that so it is it's unfortunate that yes this stuff doesn't get the headlines yeah. uh, uh, i know that's true in the forensic stuff as well uh, even that big court case i was in nobody yeah. was interested in the in the mathematician unfortunately <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but i know that i'm doing the important work. yeah that's good because that's just shit it should be everywhere i don't like that anyway thanks so much for coming in dave great to meet you and um we will uh, we'll keep keep on top of what's going on there of your your new program so thanks so much thanks david balding is from the melbourne integrative genomics group at the university of melbourne take a break for a bit of music folks and we'll be back with our final guest for today who is also from the university of melbourne and austin health three triple Welcome back, everybody. If you're wondering what tracks were played today, the first one was Land Ray We've Run, and that was Lisa Mitchell with Bless This Mess. In the studio with us now is Aaron Warren. He's from the Department of Medicine out at Austin Health. It's part of the University of Melbourne. Aaron, welcome to the studio of Triple R. It's great to be here. Hi. Now, you work on um, an area. I hadn't heard of this particular type of epilepsy before. It's Lennox Gastro Syndrome. Lennox Gasto. Gasto, yeah, okay. Um, sounds like a food. Uh, <laughs> now, this, but this, this is a very specific form of epilepsy. Can you tell us just a little bit about what, um, what that is? Yep. Um, so there's lots of different kinds of epilepsy, mm. and they range quite um, dramatically in terms of their severity. Um, so some of the more common epilepsies that affect, you know, 60 to 70% of cases, um, people might have occasional seizures, and they're generally well controlled on medications. Um, for the other kind of um, 30 to 40% of patients, though, epilepsy is a lot more severe. And so they have very frequent seizures that yep. are resistant to medications. Um, and often these patients have cognitive and behavioural comorbidities. Um, so Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, or LGS, is uh, one of these more severe epilepsies and perhaps, um, you could argue, the most severe form mm. of epilepsy. Um, so it's typically beginning in early childhood, um, around the age of three to five years. Um, and patients have uh, a very frequent um, type of dangerous seizure called tonic seizures. And these cause patients to kind of fall to the ground um, unexpectedly and they often lead to um, kind of severe uh, physical injuries as a, as a right. result of the fall. 
Um, and so kind of this combination of features um, usually leads patients to have um, quite severe or even profound levels of intellectual disability. Yeah. And um, I mean, this takes you out of the world in a way, doesn't it? They can't drive. In many cases, they won't be able to do certain jobs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, re- it really is socially impacting in a way that's profound. Yeah, it's very profound levels of disability. Um, some patients are wheelchair bound as mm. well. Um, so the kind of... Um, the comorbidities that go along with the epilepsy can often be uh, more severe than the seizures themselves. Yeah. Um, is, is it life-threatening over a term uh, or is it something you can you know, live to a normal age with? Um, so around 10% of patients, they actually die before the age of um, 10 years wow. of age. Okay. Um, and, so, and the cause of the death um, is quite varied, but mm-hmm. one cause um, is called SUDEP, and that's a sort of acronym that stands for Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy. Um, we don't really know sort of the exact reasons why hmm. SUDEP occurs, but um, yeah, patients with LGS are at high risk of SUDEP. Now, you, you put this in the category of the non-treated epilepsies. I mean, are there, are there any options though? I mean, what, what are we doing at the moment in terms of potentially treating this? Yeah, so I guess in the past, um, we had quite few treatments available for LGS, and it's really sort of only in the last kind of 10 years or so that... Um, we're sort of specifically trying to establish whether existing treatments are effective for LGS and then also kind of developing new treatments. Mm. Um, so uh, this includes kind of a range of new therapies and like in terms of uh, drugs, um, dietary therapies, um, and a particular interest of mine is in uh, stimulation uh, therapies. So this uh, stimulation, is this where you're, you're monitoring the electrical activity of the brain and you essentially do something when you see it go wrong, like literally in the brain, though, you're applying some kind of electrical stimulation. Yeah, so there's various kinds of stimulation. Um, the type, um, so we're doing a clinical trial at the moment mm-hmm. um, on a therapy called deep brain stimulation. And so this is a surgical therapy where we implant um, electrodes deep in a part of the brain called the thalamus, um, and we deliver um kind of like a continuous electrical stimulation to this part of the brain. Um, and so it's kind of like a, it's sort of like a pacemaker for your mm. brain. So the implantation is, you know, um, permanently in the body. Yep. Um, uh, there, there's sort of um, some new kind of stimulation uh, therapies that are coming online, and this is called responsive stimulation. So that's kind of what you were talking right. about yep. earlier in yep. terms of kind of detecting mm. uh, the seizure activity and then sort of delivering stimulation when it's needed. Um, mm. So there's kind of two kinds. So there's the kind of continuous stimulation and the sort of responsive stimulation. Because if I remember correctly from things I've read, there is some sort of precursor information in terms of the electrical activity in the brain prior to these seizures, isn't there? Like there's there's a bit of a an early warning sign there that it's about to occur in some sense? Um, Yeah, I mean, um, there's the kind of whole field of prediction of Mm. seizures is a sort of massive field in in itself. I don't think we're sort of quite at the stage where we can sort of accurately predict um, a seizure for a given patient. Um, But yeah, it's kind of like an ongoing stuff. So so how's how's the clinical trial going? Uh, Good. Um, So we're sort of... uh, it, we're sort of aiming to recruit about 20 patients mm-hmm. um, and around sort of half of those have kind of undergone the, the therapy so far. Um, so it's a clinical trial though. So half of the patients get, um, sort of everyone gets implanted and half of them, the stimulation's sort of turned on um, immediately after surgery and for the other half, the stimulation's delayed by six months. Okay. But that delay, um, also who's on, um, is not known to right. either us or the patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like a blinded study yeah, in that yeah, sense. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, it's going. Mm. And and is the is the goal to completely eliminate the seizures or just reduce the severity? I mean, there's where do you think it will sit? Um, so we have kind of very little information in terms of. Um, what to predict in terms of its effectiveness. We're sort of probably maybe one of, you know, two or three studies that have ever sort of mm. used this type of therapy in LGS. Um, if we can eliminate seizures, that would be obviously Amazing. ideal. Yeah. Um, but we're sort of, yeah, aiming for kind of a significant reduction relative to baseline levels of seizure frequency. Yeah. And um, in terms of the uh, age group, is this with you mentioned it was in young kids but is this the the clinical trial in kids or is it adults no so um we're doing a clinical trial at the austin and mm -hmm. so the austin um usually caters more to sort of adult epilepsy yep. um so at the moment yeah we're sort of sort of um targeting uh patients who are 18 years and over but going forward we'd really like to sort of start and extend yeah. that age down a bit. yeah but it's um it's a, it's a horrific area i think um it's great that you guys are doing it and i think just talking about that kind of deep brain sort of implantation stuff shows just how hard it is to have some effect here the fact that you have to do that like yeah. it's such a yeah. big deal so look good good luck with this work Aaron I hope it um shows some promise because I know the as, as we were saying the social and and uh, so the lifestyle effects of this not not to mention the fact that you know some people actually die from it is just extraordinarily bad so good luck thanks for coming in and um, we hope to hear some uh, great results in a year or so or whenever the thank you finishes. thank yeah. you Aaron Warren is from the Department of Medicine of the University of Melbourne based out at Austin Health, uh, working in this very interesting area of epilepsy. Dr Ailey, Dr Ray, we are uh, pretty much out of time. We're going to have to hand over to Cam from Eat It in a moment. Thank you so much for coming. Good to see you both. Good to see you, Dr Shane. You, Thank you. You keep uh, on those coral reefs. Yeah, no, I try not to have a depressive week. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the rest of my Sunday. Meanwhile, Dr Ray and I will be out transplanting them or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, with the rabbits. Yeah, well, you know, the rabbits, rabbits aren't all bad. The, the, the snow hairs are really cute. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, it, it's fascinating how um, things like that, where we weren't really anticipating like some of the effects of the changing climate uh, yeah. we're learning things about species we otherwise paid little yeah, attention probably to probably would have noticed um it's really kind of cool so anyway yeah. fun stuff folks thanks so much for listening to einstein and gogo today on three triple r we are going to hand over now to the team from eat it we hope you have a great sunday i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere and we will chat to you again in one week this has been a podcast oh. from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.